Uh, Go ahead and get your Bibles and turn in them to Genesis chapter 10 this morning. While you are turning to Genesis chapter 10, let me remind you that um, online on the Facebook page, um, you know, we post things during the week. We post the uh, daily videos of the uh, devotionals that Pastor Mitch and I are doing. Uh, We missed one one day this week, which was uh, my fault. I apologize for that. And then um, also we have a link up there for the children's ministry. You know, if you're at home and you'd like access to those resources, uh, our teachers are faithfully and diligently uh, posting a little teaching video, 15 or 20 minutes, and then we've put some resources up there for you, some uh, papers for the kids, for their, um, you know, learning and for their enjoyment as well. Uh, With that in mind, turning to Genesis chapter 10, Uh, This is uh, called the Table of Nations, Uh, probably one of the most difficult uh, chapters to teach in the Bible, at least in my experience so far. We'll see how it goes. So as you are turned there, uh, I'm not going to read this whole chapter. I'm going to read just a few select verses to guide us along since most of this is a genealogy, but it is uh, a genealogy of incredible significance for us. So Genesis chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. And then jumping over to verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizram, Put, and Canaan. Then jumping down to verse 21, and children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. Lord, as we study your word this morning, as always, we just plead with you to be our teacher, to give us understanding and illumination, and to minister to us as we consider great and wonderful and awesome and mighty things from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, uh, Genesis chapter 10, do you guys have uh, Apple TV up and running? There we go, thank you. So Genesis chapter 10, if you were to sit and read through this, and you can certainly kind of glance down it, you can see these genealogies. And uh, the first thing to note here is it says in verse one, uh, and sons were born to them after the flood. So let's remind ourselves of where we are in history. Um, The Lord, of course, created the earth. He created Adam and Eve. He entrusted creation to them. And of course, they were uh, deceived and led into sin by Satan as he deceived Eve in the garden. And then um, Adam and Eve, of course, had children and the first children they had, there ended up being a murder between Cain and Abel. So we didn't get off to good start as a human race. And then as we uh, traced our history there from chapter four and chapter five, we come to the time of Noah. And we see that Noah was a descendant of Seth who was later born in a sense as sort of a replacement to the pure bloodline that uh, was corrupted through the first crime, through the first murder. And then um, the Lord of course brought Noah into existence and Noah was uh, spoken of by God as a righteous man. And God said, through him, I will bring salvation to the earth. We also saw in in chapter six that the Nephilim had uh, entered the world. And as we study that, we believe that those were fallen angels who came to 
mate with uh, women and then to uh, produce this kind of crazy offspring, something that God saw as we studied chapter six and he said this is not good, in fact this is so bad that between the wickedness of man and this uh, sort of mutant or whatever it was, race that was coming from this union that he felt he needed to judge the earth and it said that God was sorry that he had created man because of what had happened. And so he had instructed Noah, of course, divinely to build this ark. He gave him plans. Uh, he gave him empowerment and, and you know, he provided the materials for about a hundred years. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, was building this ark along with his family. We know that Noah was 500 years old when he began to build this ark and when he actually began to have children. And then his family, of course, helped him build this ark. And then God, through that ark, brought the animals into the ark and then preserved a portion of his creation through taking them into the ark. And as we looked at that, we know that the ark also becomes a type of salvation. Uh, as uh, we come into Christ, we are saved and we are preserved from the wrath of God, just as Noah and his family, the eight of them, were preserved from the wrath of God through the flood. We know that the flood was a literal flood, that it encompassed the entire globe and that it was higher than the tallest mountain. We know that the decimation and the death were complete that God completely extinguished all of man mankind and all of the animal kingdom, and then except for what he had preserved through the ark, and that God did all these things both because he loved us as well as because his wrath had to be satisfied against uh, unholy and, un and an unrighteous people. So God did these things. And then Noah, of course, as they uh, came to the end of the time of the flood. They had been in the ark for, as we looked at this a couple weeks ago, 377 days. Uh, they came out, and then, of course, the Lord's now commanding them to repopulate the earth. And so we began to look at that last week in chapters, uh, the end of chapter 8 into chapter 9. And then this week, we come to this section in chapter 10. And if you're not familiar with it, it is called the Table of Nations. And the reason we are gonna stop and look at this more so than the other times when we typically read genealogies in the scriptures is because God uses this process to set up the nations around the globe. And we're going to look at some very interesting things this morning. So uh, try not to nod off, try to stay with me. Uh, believe me, if it's hard for you, it's very difficult for me to teach this, but um, it's worth it in the end. The 10th chapter of Genesis stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples and genealogical framework. The table of nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. William F. Albright said that. As you read the commentaries on this, you find that the table of nations this is the most accurate document anywhere in human history because there's no secular record that takes the biblical account and does this with it that, that goes through the list of the people that God brought out of the ark and then from those goes through how he repatriated the earth. So as we be begin to get into it here, we have just read verse one and verse two. We're told one of the sons of Noah was Japheth 
And he had sons, and his sons were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. So let me just begin to walk through this, and I'm going to put this uh, little graphic up here for you. I know you can't read it. Uh, I get that. Uh, but I'll be posting this up on the shared drive so you can have access to it. But what this shows, you can maybe see the colors. Over on the left-hand side is the genealogy of Japheth and green. In the middle is the genealogy of Shem in sort of a brown-goldish color. And then on the right side is the genealogy of Ham in sort of a purplish color. Now what this does for us is it lays out a, gene a genealogy of 70 people that God used to now repatriate the earth. So again, not expecting you to do a lot with that, but just wanted you to kind of ha have a visual. So Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. These people, and I'm gonna show you this if I can get it to go there. Um, this is a graphic that just so sort of shows you how they migrated. And so as I go through this, I'm just gonna leave this up here for a little while. I have another one after this. But you can see that Japheth's sons, with respect to the red box in the middle, which is where Israel is, and everything's about Israel, um, to the north and to the east, you see that Japheth's uh, people kind of went in that direction. Um, up north where uh, Turkey and all of that is, and uh, the Black Sea, and then up over to Russia, over to China, over to India. Down in the middle part is Shem, which was most of the Middle East, and then Ham's descendants mostly to North Africa. So I'll just leave that up there for a few minutes. So these people live, Japheth's sons lived mostly to the north and east of Canaan and spoke the Indo-European Indo languages. Gomer dwelt north of the Caspian Sea. Tubal and Meshech settled around the southern shores of the Black Sea. Tiris lived west of the Black Sea. Madai occupied the area south of the Caspian Sea in what became Media, and Javan populated Ionia, the southern part of Greece. The sons of Javan spread around the northern Mediterranean as far west as Tarshish and even southern Spain. So it's interesting to know this because from these people groups also came languages. Now next week, chapter 11 gets into the Tower of Babel, and so there's, there's a lot there, so we'll get into that next week. But from these people groups, at this time, there was one common language on the earth. And so God begins to spread these people. But when we come to the Tower of Babel, which we'll get into just a little bit this week, we'll begin to understand how God uh, not only populated the earth, but then spread these languages throughout the earth. And then Magog uh, begat Tubal, Meshach, uh, and these settled in the far north of Europe and became the Russian peoples. So Magog's name is important to us because when we get into biblical prophecy, uh, his name is mentioned. We'll come to that in just a moment. Magog was probably also the father of the Scythian peoples. Uh, Gog and Magog are used in scripture to represent the power of the world and therefore the enemy of God's people. So two scriptures for you right here. We'll pause for a moment. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, one of the most well-known and prolific prophecies in the Bible, talking about the time of the end. Now the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel 38, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, 
the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against them, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. It's important to note, if you're taking notes, that Gog is a person and Magog is a region. That will help you keep things straight as you later uh, in your Bible reading get down to prophecies, especially in Ezekiel and in uh, other of the prophets. So Gog is a person or a ruler and Magog is a region. Also in Revelation chapter 20, we find these people referred to. Revelation 20 verse seven, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So again, a reference there that comes from this very place where God is repatriating through Japheth. And as we continue with Japheth's lineage, Madai, from this son of Japheth came the ancient Medes, and they populated what are now Iran and Iraq, and the peoples of India also came from this branch of Japheth's family. The Medes, of course, are prominent in the book of Daniel, so that's a good place to go if you want to read a little bit more about their influence in the world. Verse 3, the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. So Gomer, from this son of Japheth, came the Germanic peoples, from whom came most of the peoples of Western Europe, and these include the original French, Spanish, and Celtic settlers. Ashkenaz, from this son of Gomer, came the peoples who settled north of Judea into what we call the Fertile Crescent, and Togarma, from this son of Gomer, came the Armenians, which would be due north in the area of Turkey. Verse 4, the sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodarim. Uh, from this son of Japheth, Javan, came the ancient Greeks, whose seafaring ways are described here in this chapter. The sons of Javan, their geographic names that spring forth from these names in this chapter abound. Linguists, uh, when they study the languages of the world, have no trouble seeing the connections between these groups. The Kittim and the Cyprus, the Rodandum and the Rhodes, uh, the Gomer and Germany, uh, Meshach and Moscow, Tubal and Tobolsk. Toblosk is a major Russian city. So Tarshish uh, became um, uh, the region uh, up toward uh, Spain and, uh, and Portugal. And then from these, the coastland, verse 5 peoples, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizram, Put, and Canaan. So Ham had four sons, and these four sons settled primarily in Northeast Africa and Egypt and the Eastern Mediterranean and Southern Arabia. Cush populated the territory of the Upper Nile, south of Egypt, and Egypt really refers to a larger region than what we know as the country of Egypt. Most believe that Put was the father of what is now Libya, and Canaan settled in what was later called Palestine and became the place, of course, of the story of Abraham and the peoples who would go in to possess the land that God had given to them. Of course, they had to c conquer the Canaanites. 
and the descendants of Canaan, noted in verses 15 through 19, read like a most wanted list of Israel's enemies. In verse 7, the sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtika, and the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. So Cush, apparently this family divided into two branches. Some founded Babylon through the lineage of Nimrod, and then others founded Ethiopia. So you can see they kind of split uh, the area there of the Red Sea. And then in verse eight, Cush begot Nimrod. Now we wanna stop and look at Nimrod for a moment because he is a notable character for what we are uh, looking at here. And of course, next week, a lot of the story comes from Nimrod at the Tower of Babel. So Cush begot Nimrod, verse eight, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. So as Cush uh, gave birth to the son Nimrod, we are told uh, in verse nine that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. The interesting thing about Nimrod as we read in verse nine that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord is that is not actually a badge of honor, that is not a compliment. The image of Nimrod indicates that he was a tyrant ruthlessly conquering men and establishing an empire. When it says that he was a mighty hunter, it's actually referring to the fact that he was a mighty hunter of men, not of animals, not a hunter like we might think of today of going out and hunting for deer or animals in that respect. He was a hunter of men and he was into conquering men and establishing empires. He built four cities in Shinar, which became Babylonia, and four more in Assyria, both Babylon and Assyria became the arch mortal enemies of Israel and ultimately the world. And uh, they were used by God to chasten his disobedient people, which of course is what much of the Old Testament is about. So we find this story of this man Nimrod as he now begins to enter history. We are told of uh, his children at the beginning of his kingdom, verse 10 rather, was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and the land of Shinar. Erech was likely the modern nation of Iraq where Baghdad is, which is likely the, uh, the site of Babylon. And Kalna and Shinar was likely the area we know as Mesopotamia. From that uh, land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, verse 11, Rehoboth, Ur and Kala, Assyria and built Nineveh. The Assyrians were a very brutal and violent peoples. Nineveh was a chief city of Assyria and we find that city prominently in the book of Jonah. And then in verse 12, and Reason and Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. And so now as we get into this here, we're, we're sort of seeing what's happening as a Nimrod and the lineage of Cush is now going out and uh, patriating this part of the earth. We know that uh, the name of Nimrod means rebel or to rebel. And so that is very much his lineage, it is his character. And we know, as we just said, that Nimrod was someone who was 
a mighty hunter of men, not so much of animals. Uh, One person said this, um, that Nimrod was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore it is said, as Nimrod the strong one, strong in hunting and strong in wickedness before the Lord. So he had a reputation, and these are things that were written in ancient history of this man, Nimrod. Another person here quoted a well-documented Jewish legend that said this, the great success that attended all of Nimrod's undertakings produced a sinister effect. Men no longer trusted in God, but rather in their own prowess and ability, an attitude to which Nimrod tried to convert the whole world. So something that's interesting about Nimrod. Now we had already seen how wickedness had entered the world to such a degree that God had to destroy it through the flood. But now through this man Nimrod, whose name means rebel or to rebel, we find an attitude entering the world. And the attitude is for one man to rule over another man. And Nimrod was a brutal, violent, vile ruler. And it seemed that he had oriented his life around the fact that he was stronger and more powerful. He apparently had leadership qualities. Most likely he ruled with fear and intimidation and he had people behind him. And so now we begin to see entering the world this idea of a man or a people group conquering other men and other people groups. Hence it is likely that Nimrod having acquired power used it in tyranny and oppression. And by uh, violence and force, he founded the domination, which was the first distinguished by the name of a kingdom on the face of the earth. How many kingdoms have since been founded in the same way as Nimrod's in various ages and nations from that time to the present? From the Nimrod's of the earth, God, please deliver the world. And of course, where we sit today in history as we look back to the days of Nimrod, certainly there are many, many people who, like Nimrod, desire to rule over and to reign over men. Nimrod is credited with the one who organized the building of the Tower of Babel. He is a picture of the pride of man, a man who glories in his own strength and capabilities. He sees what he wants, he goes and he takes it, and he feels that he has no need for God. The kingdoms that Nimrod founded include several that proved to be the deadly enemies of God's people. So an attitude entered the world through Nimrod, where Nimrod said, we are sufficient on our own, we don't need God. And if we were to try to express that as a philosophy, we would call it both atheism and agnosticism in a sense. That Nimrod had sort of fathered this idea that began to spread to other people that, hey, you know, God is not as powerful as he's, you know, led us to believe. And hey, we're not really accountable to God. We can do what we want. And it's interesting that from the descendants of the very people who lived through the flood, who saw firsthand the wrath of God against a sinful and an unbelieving world. We're only a two or three generations into the repatriation of the earth 
And we have a man who has an evil heart who was ruling over a whole region of the world and who was teaching people to rise up in pride and violence and to stand against God. And these things that I'm sharing with you are only a small portion of what's available out there for you to understand about this person Nimrod and of what he did. Now next week when we get to Babel, we will examine the city uh, and their work where they tried to build this now infamous tower. Uh, Babel is the original city of Babylon, which uh, we know so much about Babylon, and we'll talk about that in more depth next week. Verse 13, Mizraim begot Ludum, Anum, Laabim, Naphthulim, uh, Parthrusim, Cashulam, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtorim. The Philistines, of course, we know much about in the time of King Saul and David, and of course, when David uh, famously killed Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. And we see that many of the Philistines were uh, large people, they were mighty warriors. And then in verse 15, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. The family of Sidon, the son of Canaan, went north and are related to the Hittites and the group of people we know as the Lebanese. So I'm gonna switch slides now and go to another one here, which I know you can't read, but this gives a little more uh, depth into how the people spread. And we know that the Canaanites settled what we now know as the Promised Land or Israel, and the area of Sodom and Gomorrah was likely located within the area of Canaan. And then we find the, the Sinite people, and these are believed to be the Orientals, those who have become the Chinese and the Japanese. So going on in verse 16, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Aravite, the Zemurite, the Hamathite, and afterward the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar and as far as Gaza, then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboam, and as far as Lasha, these were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages and their lands and in their nations. And the children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the bro brother of Jephthah, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxed, Lud, and Aram. So let's take a look at these, the five sons of Shem. These are the Semitic peoples, Elam's descendants lived between the Medes to the north and the Persian Gulf to the south. So they were the Persians. Ashur's descendants were the Assyrians in northern Mesopotamia. Arpaxid was the father of the Chaldeans in southern Mesopotamia. Lud's descendants were the Lydians of Asia Minor. And the Arameans dwelt in what is today known as Syria. Of greatest significance among Shem's descendants was Eber, the name Eber and Arphaxid are interchangeable, and they are related to the Hebrew word, uh, to the word Hebrew or the name Hebrew, the title Hebrew, so that Eber is understood to be the ancestor of the Hebrew people. And they uh, shared the descent of Eber through Peleg, and the genealogy as we look at Peleg, Peleg, Peleg is the one through whom the Messiah comes, and so we'll come back to that again in uh, future studies. 
So it, this shows that through Abram, that Noah's blessing of Shem would ultimately be realized. And so that's what part of what we need to keep in mind here. And then in verse 23, the sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Uz is believed to be the same land of Uz, which is where Job was uh, raised. And we find in Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. So the sons of Aram, Uz, founded that land, and that's, of course, where Job was. And then in verse 24, our facts had begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For his days, uh, the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot a list of people, uh, Almodad, Shelef, Harmazeth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. And all these were the sons of Joktan. We know that these people, from them came what we now know the Arabic peoples, the Arabic people groups all through the Middle East. And then as we see this man, Jobab, in verse 29, there are many who believe that this actually was the man who became Job that we just read about in Job chapter 1, verse 1. And then in verse 30, and their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go toward Sefer, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages and their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations and from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So I know that was kind of quick, but what we learn from this is how uh, God allowed the, the nations to be repopulated through Noah's lineage. And while many of these names may not come up to us again for a very long time or maybe ever, what this begins to show as we begin to look at things like this, seeing a map and how the people spread out and where they went, one thing that kind of jumps out to us, if you haven't already figured this out, is that we all come from the same DNA. Now, there's a lot of people today who like to say that, you know, we all have uh, such, you know, varied and different DNA trees. But when you read this account of Scripture, and we think about how you know, God again created Adam and then all, everything that happened through the destruction of the earth and then through Noah and his sons, God repatriated the earth. It's from these people groups that the entire earth came. So this is significant to us for a number of reasons. First, this indicates to us that Jehovah is God. He is the Lord of the nations. And we are told all throughout scripture that God gave the nations their inheritance and that he determined the times and the seasons and the appointments for all the nations. And even though very quickly already we're seeing evil people come forth from the people that God used to, uh, to repatriate the world, that God is in control. That what God promises, he performs. He had promised that through Noah that he would repopulate the earth, and God did that. Secondly, uh, the nations belong to all of the same human family. In essence, we are of one blood. And we need to know that when we 
have things like we have going on right now in our society and in the world, we need to remember the very important thing that God created all mankind in his image. That we all, in a sense, are children of God, not that everyone is a believer, but that God created all men. He set our DNA in motion. In fact, if you are interested in further study, uh, when you go in and you do a search on the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, you will find there are some very smart scientists who studied genetics who mapped the world with maps like this, but they did it from a genetic code level. And so uh, if you're, you're into that thing, you can kind of go read that. But it's just interesting because we can begin to see uh, how you know, the qualities of people, the color of skin, you know, our eyes, our hair, all those kinds of things. And it's just a, an amazing picture of how God has allowed the world to come together as it has. Number three, God has a purpose for the nations to fulfill. I want you to consider this this morning. Every nation on the face of planet Earth has a purpose to fulfill according to the Lord. You see, God doesn't do things randomly. And when we think of countries like Egypt and parts of the Middle East, Iran, Iraq, Russia, China, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, these nations all have a, a prophetic significance. They all have a place in God's plan and in God's kingdom. And of course, many of them will be used. And when we look at a map like this and we see where the word Philistia is, which I know you probably can't see, but it's sort of right in the middle here. I get my mouse to work. It's right down here, <laughs> right there. That little place, Israel, the size of New Jersey, a country on the face of planet Earth. And yet, as we come and read the time of the end and we see a map like this, all of the peoples from the north and the east, and they're all gonna come against Israel. And even today, we already know, right, they all hate Israel. And these are the very peoples that God allowed to come out of Noah's family tree, and God allowed them to come into existence. And we know as history has unfolded, certainly through the Bible and the Old Testament in particular, that so many of them hate Israel. And even as we come to today, we look at the nations of the world that hate Israel. And we know that all of this is serving a purpose and a plan that God has. Lastly, we know that God is concerned for all the nations. Frequently in the book of Psalms, we find the phrase, all ye lands or all ye nations. And God loves people, God loves the nations. And we also read things uh, in the Gospels and uh, throughout Paul's writings and even in the book of Revelation that from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, there will be people in the kingdom of God. You see, God has a plan and a purpose that even though he has a national plan for each nation that will fulfill something in his grand divine purpose, he also loves all of the people at an individual level and he also wants to see people saved and come into his kingdom. So as we read what we just read, which can often, uh, these kinds of things can be, can be very boring to us, we need to understand something that the significance about the table of nations sets in motion a plan that will be unfolded throughout the rest of the scriptures. God used Adam and Seth 
and Noah. He's about to use Abraham, whom we'll come to in a couple of weeks. And then David, all the way down to the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Lord. God has a plan that is bigger than all of us can consider. This one, uh, we must consider that this one chapter in Genesis is a mirror in which to discern that we human beings are, namely, creatures so marred by sin that we have no knowledge of our own origin, not even of God himself. Our creator, unless the word of God reveals these sparks of divine light to us from afar, this knowledge of the holy scriptures revealed to us that those who are without them live in error, uncertainty, and boundless ungodliness, for they have no knowledge about who they are and from where they came. So we need to understand that this for us this is sort of our genealogy. Maybe you and I can't go back or, you know, maybe you, you can. I mean, you know, if you want to spend the money and go through 23andMe or one of those services and find a little bit about your history. But most of us don't have the ability to go all the way back to Noah and to his people. But we know ultimately through what God is sharing with us here that we all have a lineage back to what we've just read here in Genesis chapter 10. This table, the table of nations, also declares that all people derive their existence from the life-giving power of God and are responsible to him. The Apostle Paul used this truth in his famous sermon on Mars Hill in Athens, where he called the idolatrous Athenians to seek the one true God. And here's what Paul said. Paul said, and he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring." What does the table of nations reveal to us? That we belong to God. That all peoples came from God. You see, in the midst of the madness going on in the news and in the world of social media right now, the one thing that has encouraged me, and there's been very little that has, has been the people who have been coming together and standing up and posting and saying, it's not certain lives matter, it's all lives matter because all life is precious in the sight of God. And we need to come together and yes, put an end to the, the, the kind of violence that tar that's targeted at peoples and people groups. These kinds of things are never pleasing to God. And if there's one place on the face of planet Earth that God wants people to find peace and rest and acceptance, it's in the church, it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let the table of nations be to us a lesson. Let the table of nations point us back to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have terms in the, the gospels, things like where Jesus said, John three sixteen, for God so loved, who? The world. Who's the world? It's all of these people that we're talking about here, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, and who is whosoever? It's whosoever, right? Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have 
everlasting life. Who are the people for whom Jesus came to die? The whosoever's. And everyone is a whosoever. And so the table of nations points us to the whosoever's. You see, we are all descendants of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And as Paul said, speaking of God in him, we live and move and have our being. As we close down this morning, I just wanna say something about what's been happening in our world. <clears throat> I don't know that I've ever seen a time, at least in my lifetime, that's been this crazy. Where everything that's out there, on social media, on the news, and I don't care what the news source is, it's all crazy. If anyone says something, it doesn't matter what that something is, if someone says something, someone is so ready to pounce on them to say something back at them and to condemn them. I mean, think about all the people we've been seeing you know, resign from things or come out with public apologies and that kind of a thing. It, it's a time where you can't even express an opinion about something, even if that opinion is maybe perhaps not good or not healthy. But God wants us in a time like this to be salt and light, doesn't he? And as we read about things like we're reading in the scriptures, and I realize today may not have been the most exciting study, but I want you to know something. God is always pointing us back to himself. He's pointing us back to his sovereignty. He's pointing us back to the fact that he loves people. And so we as believers in Jesus Christ should not be getting caught up in the madness that's happening out there. I mean, it's disheartening. Uh, I read what's happening and I read the news constantly throughout the day and it is so discouraging. Uh, it, it's heartbreaking, it's heartrending to see the injustice and the violence and the hatred and the vehemence. I have never seen this much hatred and just like spitting kind of, you know, anger coming out of people. Certainly we're living in a crazy time. Perhaps this is the time that God is getting ready to sum everything up. I don't know. I'm not here to say prophetically that it's right around the corner. It may be. But I know this, that whenever these things happen, God is allowing them to happen. And we just read in the devotional, I think it was yesterday, we were talking about the no one takes a light and uh, puts it under a basket. Uh, you know, a city set on a hill is supposed to be a light that's on a hill that's supposed to be a place of uh, leading people to, to light, to truth, to love. And we as the church of Jesus Christ in this time, folks, we have to be light. And something that's very important for us to understand about light, we don't so much see light in the light. We see light in the darkness, don't we? Light shines best when it's dark. I shared a little thing yesterday and I'll close with this. Uh, I don't know how many of you know anything about the history of World War II. I'm certainly not an expert on anything. But during that time, and I've, I've known people who lived through that era, the people of Europe, especially as they were being attacked by Nazi Germany and uh, by the people who were coming to try and take over and rule the world, much as Nimrod that we read about this morning, uh, during the evenings, they had this standing order all throughout Europe. 
that as soon as the sun went down, everybody had to extinguish all of their lights. And the reason was that they could see where the population centers were and how effective or ineffective their bombing raids had been. And they made maps and they did bombing runs at night and they would go after people that they had not yet extinguished and brought under their thumb. And so even a little pinpoint of light, a candle in a room, they could see from an airplane. Light shines in the darkness. In my time on this earth, I don't know that I've ever seen a darker time. And there's been a lot of dark times through our history. So I wanna encourage you, be light. How do I be a light? I stay close to the Lord. Read his word, pray, seek his face. Don't get caught up in the madness of the world. Don't allow all of these crazy things to suck you in. Be a light. When people say things, when they say hateful things, regardless of who we are and what affiliations we have, let's give Jesus back to them. Let's give scripture back to them. Let's give love back to them. I, I love this song, it's been on my heart that we sang today. No weapon formed, us, formed against us shall stand. There's no weapon greater than your love. Jesus said that the world will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. And we also know that love covers a multitude of sins. So our job is not to bring judgment and wrath to the world, that's God's job when the time is right. Our job is to bring the love of God to a dry and a weary land. He's called us to be light and love and hope in a desperately dark time. So let me encourage you this morning, press into the Lord be salt and light. Yes, stand up for truth, but do it according to the scriptures. We aren't here to put anyone down. We aren't here to be you know, the truth police to the world, but we are here to bring the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel of our great God to a lost and a dying world, amen. Lord, thank you this morning for your love to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have given of us, given to us so freely of yourself and of your son. And just as you provided to Noah, uh, you gave him everything he needed, you gave him food, you provided the animals, you gave him the tools and the supplies, you preserved them through the darkest time in human history, a time when you had to pour out your wrath on the earth and, and judge all of mankind. Lord, may we be like Noah. May we be people of righteousness. May we be people of light. And Lord, may you use us in this time to send forth your love and your gospel. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and use us in these days. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you wanna stand this morning, we'll have a closing song. The Lord bless you and keep you this week. We look forward to seeing you in the coming weeks and we look forward as things open up a little more to having more people back so we can gather together. God bless you today.